This is the Epilog audio experience. <laughs> is it raining? Wow, that sounds really is. good. <laughs> How's Brian doing? <laughs> Brian, um, Brian has just gotten to the point where we can take him out on walks. So we've started maybe two days ago. So he's he's doing well, but he gets very excited on his walks, and then he sort of naps for several hours after a walk. Okay, all right. It's nice to have Brian around. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Film is clearly a sophisticated art. possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film So far in our podcast the artists we have had filmmakers writers critics programmers from some of the top film festivals musicians thinkers defining their combinatorial skills We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences and also we have tied up with Epilog Media the podcasting network so you can find us on their website epilogmedia/theartists and of course you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcast to Spotify to GeoSavan to Google Podcast everything is mentioned in the description and of course you can reach us uh, on the whatsapp number and our email id i'm your host suchita and i'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you how are your stories affected when you come from a marginalized community or from a community that is constantly labeled does it help the person who is from the community or is it something that affects their psyche it's something that i'm actually constantly debating like a female filmmaker like a filmmaker from lgbtqia community and all that might help someone get seen i'm not too sure if if it's something that might that might sort of help the person psychologically our guest for today is isidore bethel and uh, isidore's films come from being a part of the lgbtqia community he is a french american filmmaker he is an editor and a director isidore has been named one of the 25 new faces of independent film in 2020 his first film as a director was liam that premiered at the boston lgbtq film festival in 2018 and received the jury prize in the documentary section he edited an associate produced of men and war which premiered at the cannes film festival i also had the good fortune to watch his other documentary film that he is currently directing and it's in the rough cut stage called acts of love it's a very bold filmmaking uh, it's a filmmaking where he has put himself in the center of things he's one of the main characters isidore is a graduate uh, of harvard university he's also from the school of art institute of chicago he's been part of lot of labs and also has been artist in residence so stay tuned and enjoy the conversation Hi Sidor welcome to a podcast the artist and uh, thank you for joining in and being part of the show how is it going today I'm doing well it's my pleasure to be to be with you Suchita thank you I want to sort of start the conversation with uh, this question that why did you choose to be a filmmaker 
I think, uh, I don't know necessarily that I would say that it was a choice. Mm -hmm. It was something where both of my parents are visual artists. Um, mm -hmm. So I grew up with drawing and, and painting and sculpture. And that was just sort of the way that my parents uh, interacted with the world. And I think for the first 10 years of my life or so, that was also a very important way for me to engage with the world, to understand it, to participate in it uh, through drawing, through acting, um, through painting, through just through art, um, like my parents. And then um, I was also, I'm an only child, so making artwork and doing that with friends was sort of a big way of feeling like I existed and feeling like I was part of things and, and sort of connecting with, with my friends. Um, and then when I was 10, I got a a little camcorder, um, just sort of like a high eight camcorder that my best friend and I started using to make animations with, uh, objects we'd find around the house with like Lego toys with clay. Um, and it seemed like drawing was something that was already so, uh, rich and dynamic and invigorating for me. And then filmmaking exploded that and just made it even bigger. And it was a way to, to connect basically like with my, with my best friend, to connect with my parents, to connect with my parents' friends when we would show them the films that we were working on. Um, was your best friend Liam? It, he was, yeah. On um, whom you have made the film as well, yeah. Yeah, my first film is about, is about Liam and about uh, our relationship and what happened when he, when he was killed about 10 years after that. Mm -hmm. um, and... At, at different moments as I got older, I would say that filmmaking became this way of processing feelings that were overwhelming and that I had no other way of kind of dealing with. Mm, um, expressing it. So, yeah. yeah. So it was sort of like whenever I'm, I'm at a loss for other communicative means, I go towards filmmaking. And filmmaking is this, this envelope or this container that... Uh, lets me deal with things that are really kind of too hard to process. Hmm. I was I was watching I was watching your film Acts of Love and I just I just thought this was such a personal space and such a bold filmmaking, you know, putting yourself out there. I mean you are the central character. And uh, also Liam was very touching. It was so touching and personal that I actually I could not sort of, you know, I had tears in my eyes and I was like, you know, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I should watch this, you know, while the interview is there and perhaps I should watch it later because it was such a personal space. But Isidore, before I talk about your personal filmmaking as a director, as a writer, as an editor, as a teacher, I just want to sort of... Uh, uh, you know, get a bit more personal and you can choose to be comfortable in whatever way you, you want to answer the question. You, you know, you, we, we, we were talking about labeling and of course you're coming from a queer community. Uh, how has that sort of influenced your, your way of thinking and seeing life? Um, I think it's, uh, I'm gay. I have been out for about 10 years now, a little bit more. Um, and it's something where like, it's, it's a part of who I am. Um, so it's hard for me to like take a step out of it and, and say, say like this, this dimension of who I am is because I'm gay or this dimension of who mm. I am is because I'm white or because I'm 
uh, French American or because my parents are this way or because my parents are artists. So I, I, I'll, I'll answer it in a, in a different way, possibly where, um, I do think that growing up, um, as a preteen and as a teenager, knowing somewhere intuitively that I was attracted to men, um, and not feeling comfortable sharing that with my friends, with my parents, with anyone, mm -hmm. um, that did shape a certain way that I was like thinking about the world and seeing the world where like I had a secret, um, mm -hmm. and the desires that I had, uh, didn't necessarily entirely match the ways that I performed or behaved with other people. So I think that that maybe, uh, had an impact on the ways that I saw other people's behaviors and other people's performances socially. Um, that's, that's one thing. And then I think on the other hand, uh, in terms of queer community, my first film screened primarily in LGBTQ plus film festivals. And that was a community that I hadn't necessarily sought out explicitly, but that I found incredibly welcoming, diverse, rich, challenging, stimulating. Um, the film premiered at the, at the Boston LGBT film festival, mm. which is called Wicked Queer. And then it went on to continue to the Paris LGBTQ plus film festival. And then, uh, Zagreb's queer film festival. And those were places that were incredibly welcoming for this film that had had kind of a struggle in terms of its, its festival path. So that's, that was sort of the, the first moment in my life and in my career where I understood that like, I'm very different from many other queer people. I'm very different from other gay people. I'm very different from trans people. I'm very different from lesbians. Um, but there was something where creating a space for people who have been marginalized because of their sexuality did indeed make for a kind of nurturing haven for me and for this film, um, I'm thinking in particular at the, the Paris LGBTQ plus film festival, which was sort of a miracle when, when the film screened there, it was such a, such an exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, um, in acts of love, you actually, uh, your mom, you, uh, she, you interact a lot with your mom and she shares her, uh, point of view about, you know, your, your, your life and your partners, uh, you're pretty comfortable doing that. And of course, uh, it's very accepting. How, how was that to sort of shoot and, you know, put it out there? I think there's something about uh, my filmmaking where I use filmmaking to live in ways that maybe I wouldn't dare live in my real life or like I'm mm. scared to live in my real life. And I mm -hmm. think there's something, my mother is in both of my films and my mom yes. is someone who is brilliant, uh, who loves me and knows how to challenge me and critique me like almost like no one else. Mm. Um, and I think that filming with her is always a struggle, but it's a struggle that really has a lot of spiritual payoff for me where, um, I think the times that I've gotten the closest to her has, have, have been when we've been filming together and often disagreeing about, uh, my work as an artist and in my first film, uh, she didn't, she didn't want to be in my film and I was grieving. My, my best friend had been killed, uh, shortly before. And I, I felt somewhere in my gut that I needed to talk about this with my mom. And I needed to talk about this with my mom through the act of filmmaking. 
and her position was like, I don't want to be in a film. I don't want to be in your film. I don't want images to be made of me. Like the only images she wants to have made of her are the images she makes through her own art practice. Um, but I was in a place of pain and I was asking for something that I needed at the time. And because of love, I would say she, she gave that to me as much as she disliked it. And, um, in my second film in acts of love, there's all of that, but complicated by the fact that the film is about my approach to intimacy and my approach to sexuality with other men. Um, so I think that in addition to not wanting to be in a film again, there's something where she's uncomfortable about the ways that I'm navigating intimacy. And she's very right. I was, I was looking for validation uh, through sex and mm. ultimately like validation and sort of the feeling like I deserve to be loved again didn't come from sex alone. It came from sort of a multitude of things and it came from a sense of confidence that, that, that is hard to characterize, that is kind of amorphous. And in part, it came from my mother's love as well. Her, her ability to critique me in a way that was caring, um, where challenging me can also be a form of love. Mm. Sure. Uh, tell me, Siddhar, in terms of, uh, so Liam and Acts of Love are the two films that you directed. And then I saw this beautiful film, So Late, So Soon, where you are an editor. And it just put a smile on my face, seeing this very old couple, you know, going through their daily grind. And it was a beautiful, it was beautifully done. Uh, when you are directing, you are putting yourself in the center space uh, and it's there in Liam and it is, it's very bold in Acts of Love. Uh, how did you design a film that you have directed versus a film where you're an editor and sold it so soon? I think it, it, it has to do with like leading so I think when I'm directing, I have a very overwhelming feeling, whether it's grief or feeling isolated and unloved, and I don't know what to do with that. And I'm kind of out of control. And the way that I progressively, gradually try to make meaning of those feelings is to make a film. So I propose something and then my cinematographer or the people who are on screen with me respond to it and react to it and sometimes contradict it. And then I'll... I'll lead again, I'll make another proposal, and then my collaborators will respond to that. And sort of gradually and over the process of years, we end up going down a path together. Um, when I direct, I don't edit the films that I direct. And, and my editors, uh, a French woman named Sandy Bompard edited Liam, and then on Acts of Love, it was a, a French man named France, uh, Francis Leplay, Francis Leplay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think editing those films when I'm as a director, it involves giving up a lot of control, yeah. um, saying, I trust you to, to edit this film and I trust you to write the story. Hmm. Um, so I think when I'm editing a film like Daniel Hymanson's so late, so soon, I'm just in the opposite position where Daniel led on that film. He made a lot of proposals. He filmed for years. Um, and he came to me with, 500, 600 hours of footage. Oh my God. Mm. And then it, and then, and then it was up to me to respond to that, to, to look at everything, 
to start to make selections based on what excited me, what moved me, what confounded me, what uh, what made me angry, what made me sad, what, what sort of provoked feeling for me. Mm-hmm. And then from that, uh, I slowly, also over years, uh, built a story from from what Daniel had originally proposed through his cinematography and through his directing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say when I'm when I'm editing and when I'm directing, I'm contributing to narrative. I'm I'm writing narrative, but I'm always writing narrative in dialogue with my collaborators, whether my collaborator is the director I'm working with or the editor who's editing a film that I'm directing. Mm-hmm. So so I understand the space where you uh, you are an editor like so so soon it comes to you and then you sort of take it over and you know you interact with the director uh, and of course you are just involved as an editor there you're not you're not concerned with distribution any other other aspect of making the film but when it comes to Liam and Acts of Love where you are the director and also the producer of your own film how do you tackle the challenges of funding it? Or do you just sort of say that, okay, I'm going to like put in my money, take my camera, shoot it, and then see what happens after that? So on both Liam and Acts of Love, I knew that um, I couldn't produce those films entirely alone. Right. So I worked with um, a producer on Liam uh, named Anne-Laure Berthaud, mm-hmm. and we got a little bit of money. Um, from the French Institute, they gave uh, about 5,000 euros, which we used to compensate the editor, the sound editor, and the sound mixer at rates way, way, way below their Mm -hmm. normal salaries. And um, I put a lot of my own money also into that film. Mm -hmm. But I would say in total, we made that film for maybe 12,000 euros, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And then of course there are all these other costs that are just related to my life. So like I bought a camera, but I don't include that in in the cost of the film. I traveled to the U S several times, but I would have done that anyway to see my parents and to see Liam's parents. Um, Mm. but I'm not, um, in terms of production, I'm not doing things alone. Um, and I think the, the moral, and I would say like spiritual support that my producers give me is invaluable. And they're also very involved um, in providing creative feedback, both on the cut, uh, as well as on writing that we do about the film, any imagery that comes to represent the film, the trailers that we cut. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure if that like totally answers your question, but like, mm. I'm not, I'm not alone in the production right. kind of standpoint, even right. if these are, these are films that are very difficult to produce. They're yes. on paper, they're super hard to sell, especially before they're filmed yes. or edited because mm. they're films that sort of became written in the editing. Like Sandy basically wrote Liam in the editing and then Acts of Love is a film that, that Francis wrote in the editing. Um, so it's very hard to go to a funding institution and say like, hey, I don't know what this film is going to be, but like, can I have your money? So it's it, it, <laughs> it just like, they're, they're films where I've been very fortunate to earn a living as an editor and as a teacher and as a translator. Um, and I'm able to save a little bit of money and put it aside that I can then use to finance these much riskier uh, films, riskier at least in like financial terms. Right. But it's not tell me this in terms of 
uh, you planning for both your films, Liam and Acts of Love, initially, do you sort of go around writing an outline? Uh, do you design the visual treatment? Uh, what what was the process, and what would you recommend to uh, filmmakers out there? It, it was very messy. I would say, it, mm. like I, I do a lot of writing, right. or I have done of writing before I before I start filming, mm. but it's more kind of notes to myself. So for so on Liam. Liam was killed in May of 2011, and uh, I almost immediately after that flew to Paris, where I was going to be studying for the the next two years. Mm -hmm. And I brought maybe like the 10 or 12 or 15 high eight tapes that he and I had recorded together, filming mm, yes. each other, filming mm. ourselves, and then also these kind of animations uh, with Lego, with clay, with toys that we'd filmed together. So for me, the first... Um, I also had footage that someone had shot at his burial. So I had, um, my, my like writing process involved looking at all of this material, the archival footage that we'd shot together, but then also this footage of his burial. And one of the, I, I gave a eulogy for him as did maybe 10 other people. Um, some of that does appear in the film. Um, so writing for me wasn't necessarily like sitting down and writing a script, it was interacting with material that already existed um, in a way that was very aimless, that was very loose, that was very overwhelming for me. Um, and the film has, the final film has virtually nothing to do with the edits that I was making that first summer. Um, but those edits that I was making that first summer were just necessary to to feel less pain, I mm, think. Yeah. Um, and then on, on, it was sort of, it was like a morning ritual. It was, mm. I missed my friend and like, uh, I looked at photographs of him and then I also looked at all of this footage that was related to him and mm. I started playing with it. Mm. And on Acts of Love, it was equally messy and maybe even more like audaciously messy where I, my, my boyfriend in Mexico City was starting to lose interest in me and I traveled to Chicago where I was doing a, a master of fine arts and I was feeling rejected and isolated. And I started, um, meeting a lot of men on, on dating applications, like looking for, looking for validation. And mm. I, I was feeling again, like overwhelmed. And whenever I'm feeling that way, it kind of a way to feel a little bit safer or a little bit more stable for me is to like get a camera. Um, so I started filming my encounters with these men and kind of organically from there, um, wanted to continue relationships with four of the men that I met in particular. And I, I would watch our first encounters, which kind of coalesced into the forms of interviews. Mm -hmm. I would watch those, those interviews. I would transcribe them as a way of just kind of like understanding them and getting a handle on them. Mm -hmm. And then I would write, I would write scripts um, that involved the other, the other man and myself, mm -hmm. I would send that script to the other man and say like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to act this out with me? And sometimes they would say, sure, but like, I want to rewrite this part or I want to like cut this scene. Um, and I, that was exciting to me. It was exciting to me that these men were involved enough or committed enough to want to 
change the writing and to like yeah. rewrite the story that we were going to live out together. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what writing looked like for me on Acts of Love. It was, it's, it's easy to talk about it in hindsight, but at the time, like, had you asked me that when I was shooting, I would have been in, totally incapable of answering it. <laughs> tell me, tell me in terms of now, since you finished the film and of course, I, I think I saw the rough cut out there. Uh, how do you plan to, and this is all for the document film, filmmakers out there, how do you plan to uh, take it forward in terms of the distribution aspect of it? It's something where I'm, we're sending it to several film festivals, mm-hmm. um, but that's something that's out of my control. Um, right. I know that festival programmers may appreciate it, it may resonate with them, they may hate it. Um, they may not have space in their lineup for it. Um, so at this point, my my goal is to is for people to see it and to and for me to be able to see how it's affecting people and how people are responding to it. And then I'm interested in talking about it with people. Like I think it's it's a film that brings up a lot of questions, um, and I'm super eager to talk about those questions in Q and A's and it's unclear like when that's going to happen, how that's going to happen with COVID. Um, I can, I mean, I can answer you very specifically where like we've sent it to a few film festivals. Um, we've sent it to Sundance, Rotterdam, Berlin, but who knows? Those are super competitive film festivals. Um, and with Liam, we spent, two years submitting the film to film festivals and we would get feedback from programmers. We had programmers and sales agents say, really love your film. Um, I found it incredibly moving. We had a few programmers even say like, it's, it's one of our favorite films this year, but it doesn't fit into our festival. It doesn't fit into the, the kind of lineup we're trying to build. Um, we don't know if it's a film that's going to bring in a lot of crowds. Um, and ultimately, a programmer from uh, the Boston LGBT Film Festival took a risk on it and said, you know what, I feel something with this film. I love it. I want to program it. And that that sort of brought a little visibility to it that 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 then contributed to other people seeing it and it ended it ending up getting programmed at other festivals sort of down the line. So that was the path on Liam. I don't know what the path will be on Acts of Love. And I think mm-hmm. that there's something to me, that's reassuring about working on other films as an editor, where if it takes another two years for Acts of Love to find an audience, like, that's okay. It's Mm -hmm. what really counts to me is what is my day-to-day life. And on a day-to-day basis, I'm working with colleagues I really love and who love me and who appreciate me. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm having strong and exciting and like caring exchanges on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I have faith that the film will find its audience. I don't know, and I don't, I don't necessarily need to control the parameters of what the encounter with an audience looks like ultimately. Right, right. Is there in terms of, uh, just for, for our, you know, our listeners out there, when you started making these films, and I'm talking about Liam, an act of love, uh, did you think about uh, what is my audience? Uh, did you think about uh, what is uh, my audience, where I'm going to take the film to? Uh, did you think about these things that are being questioned when you are going to an investor of Nancer and they ask for the ROIs? Did you think that about it personally when you were making these films? I didn't. Um, and I think that 
it's something that's really hard for me to think about because I'm interested in working on films that are vital for the filmmakers first and foremost, because mm-hmm. I would say like as a director, if, if my films aren't a question of life and death for me, I don't know how I can expect anyone else to care about them. Um, and I've gravitated towards directors who also think that way. So like the directors whose films I edit very much are whether they appear on screen or not, their lives are totally wrapped up in the films that they're making. Um, and I think that it's only in the editing stage, I would say, and sort of late in the editing stage that the question of other viewers comes in. And when I'm editing a film, I think that my role as an editor is that of almost an ambassador for the public, for the audience. Like my role is to receive this footage as if I knew nothing about it, because like I try not to know anything about it before I see it. Mm -hmm. I'm not on set. Um, I didn't spend years of my life shooting it. I just look at the image and I listen to the sounds and I see what they, what they conjure up in me. Um, and in that way I can trust my gut to say, Hey, this is interesting. This is moving. Um, this is exciting. And I think the same thing happened for me when I was directing Liam and acts of love, where my editors are the people who, who gave me confidence and said, this moves me. This is interesting to me, and that's why I believe it's going to be interesting for other people, my editors and my producers. Um, I would say that like collaborators on a film are sort of your first audience, and then gradually that audience, that circle expands to maybe potential funding partners, and then maybe to uh, a sales agent and a distributor, and then festivals, and then the public at large. Um, mm. it's a gradual process for me. I think, I think Liam and acts of love in their early stages were sources of great shame to me. Like I didn't want anyone to see them. Um, I was really sh- ashamed of, um, my grief and the fact that I hadn't come out to, to Liam when he was alive. Those were things that I was very ashamed about. And it was only over the course of years and over the, through the process of the editor, helping me make meaning from it that I realized that, oh, this is meaningful for me. It's meaningful for the editor. And you know what? Like, it seems like it's going to be meaningful for other people. And then screening it um, publicly, like, confirmed that. Um, So I'm I'm kind of operating on on faith with Acts of Love, where it it hasn't screened for a public yet. But my editor, Francis, uh, immediately was like, you know what, this is, this is incredibly charged, exciting, moving material. And I think it deserves to become a story. And I, I like, I, I trusted Francis, who's a dear friend of mine, um, probably for about a year before we started soliciting producers. And it was at that point when we started working with, um, a Brazilian American named Jamie Gonsalves. And it was his, his gaze, um, that kind of constituted a, a first audience of like, oh, this can interest someone else, someone else who's who's straight, someone else who has like a different cultural background. And then from there, we we started working with two um, two producers based in France, Lucy Rego and Pauline Trenvenu. Um, and their their eyes also constituted that kind of like first audience. Um, 
and gradually from there we've we've screened it for more test audiences and I, I feel much more comfortable and confident in the in the value of the story that for so long was like a source of shame for me about my sexuality, about my my desires, um, about the ways that I was attracted to to men who tended to be much older than myself. Mm -hmm. Tell me, Slur, in terms of uh, just for you know for 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 documentary filmmakers in in general on a wider vision, what should, according to you, uh, a nonfiction work, uh, a nonfiction visual and documentary be? Oof. Uh, I, I want to, I want to honor your question and answer it. My, my, my instinct and my gut is to say like, I don't think it should be anything. And like, I, I think you could, you could like, there's, there are no rules, but I'll, I want to, cause your question is, is, is a, is a strong and important question. So I'm going to try to honor it. Um, sure. I think it should be something that's meaningful for its maker. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that it's up to the maker to, to figure out what the right form is. Um, and that can re require a lot of trial and error. Um, but I think it's something that like at the end of the day, I would hope that the maker can screen their work for, thousands and thousands of people or can watch it thousands and th thousands of times themselves and say, you know what, this, this is what I wanted. This is right. Um, and that's what I think like a work of nonfiction should be. Um, sure. Sure. Tell, tell the team that made it. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Uh, so you are from a film school and I was reading your bio and I'm like, Oh my God, you are a BA from Harvard. You are, You've you've done you 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 passed out from the the Art Institute of Chicago. You teach design in cinema. You've been part of so many labs. You have been artist in residence, and I'm like, oh my god. Tell me if you were not from a film school and you were not a part of these labs, how different your outlook would be to cinema and your work. Um. I don't know. I mean, that's the, mm. that's the sort of, it, it kind of goes, it's, it's, it's in the, a similar vein as your question about being a part of the LGBTQ plus community mm. where it's, I, I did, I did study film at Harvard and I, I have attended these different labs. Um, they don't feel like they were essential to my art. Mm. Um, I think they, they gave me the confidence to know what the limits of education and what the limits of mentorship are. Um, mm -hmm. because ultimately I believe that artists are like, we're all on our own paths Yes, and guidance from others can be incredibly insightful, yeah. but at a certain point we have to find our own paths and people can question us and people can support us and people can, can, can encourage us on those paths. But no lab or no school is going to tell me the path that I need to be on. Um, it's up to me to listen to my heart and to my gut um, and to kind of like flail around and, and be messy until I find that path. And it's, it's a, it's an, it's a lifelong uh, process for me, at least. Um, I will say that like the labs and, and going to Harvard was very helpful in having confidence and knowing that 
um, if I get labs on a project that I'm doing, that's great. And if I don't, that's also great because maybe that means that something that we're doing with this given film is so out there or so different or so special that it doesn't have a way of fitting into institutional infrastructures yet. And that can be super exciting. And I want to, I want to continue to edit films like that. I want to continue to direct films like that. I want to continue to produce films that don't yet have a place in the current landscape. Mm. Lovely. Tell me, sir, in terms of, uh, you know, again, coming back to, uh, you know, your teaching aspect of cinema and design, uh, what we are teaching, what we are making, and actually what we are seeing and what we are absorbing every day. Uh, in terms of absorbing, uh, for example, the videos or the, or the culture that we are turning out to be, the fast culture, the pop culture, which is consuming things very fast in terms of its video making, in terms of the TikTok, everything, everything. Do you think uh, when you are teaching your students uh, versus what is out there, uh, it's going to create a conflict in the in in certain area of uh, storytelling. Um, I don't necessarily see conflict. Um, okay. I see different different modes of storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. And one second, I'm gonna I have to cough. Okay, cough. Okay, I, I, I courteously muted my microphone while I talked, so... Okay. <laughs> um, um, I've shown students very slow, contemplative work, and some of them find it very boring, and some of them find it um, refreshing, because it's, it's not something that they typically have access to or would watch. Um, and I also think that there, there are interesting things that I, as a filmmaker, can glean from the way that Instagram formats videos mm. um, or the way that my telephone formats uh, the exchange of sounds and images and texts. Um, that inevitably has an impact on the ways that I watch and create more thea- like theatrical cinematic experiences. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't see things necessarily in conflict. I, I would tend to uh, focus on the, the desires and the um, interests of each individual filmmaker and each individual viewer. Um, mm-hmm. but, but do you think that filmmakers should be concerned about this or, or distributors should be concerned about this? Because I was just having this chat with the distributor and he was telling me that the cost the the selling price of content is falling by the day and when he's talking about content he's talking about stories mainly coming from the circuit of uh, you know festival circuit or art house space because he says he feels that uh, the audience attention span is reducing he feels that there's a new content that's needed every three to four months that's how how you know how much of the content is needed and content is not the right word i hate that word you know but that's the word generally people use for everything everything has come under content including the hard work of filmmakers going for years making movies that's also content for them so so 
you know do, do you see a clash uh, you know or or a sort of a conflict where you know filmmakers are designing the film in a certain way it could be a slow pace it could be a complete storytelling but the consumers out there you know uh, are going to just keep falling because the attention span is reducing by the minute i i think um what you're describing is a reality of of the world that you and I live in, and a reality of the the film world that we that we exist in. Um, I think my response is a very small scale one, where it's very easy for me to get overwhelmed by what you're describing and and to feel kind of fatalistic and depressed. Um, and I think I would rather focus on what is mm. um, relatively within my control um, and. I, I deliberately work on films that have small teams. I work on films that generally have pretty small audiences, but that have screened on public television, that have screened in theaters, um, that screen in festivals, and that, that have an impact on audiences, and sometimes that have an impact on surprising audiences, on audiences that wouldn't necessarily expect to be receptive to, to what the, the films are proposing. Um, and I think it's, for me, it's a question of honoring like the kind of work that I need to make. Yes. And then also, and then also just ensuring that I'm able to survive financially. And that's something mm -hmm. I have, I have a huge privilege of being able to earn a living as an editor and that's precarious work. Like it might dry up at some point, but for the, for the moment, um, I'm able to work on films that I love and earn a living. And that, that allows me to maybe worry a little bit less about producing content that is specifically going to earn money. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Because I also, I also think that there's something about, um, maybe there, there's, there, there are films that aren't necessarily commercially viable, but that are unforgettable and that have like a lifelong, lifelong impact on people. Yes. Um, and I think as long as I'm financially able to contribute to those kinds of films, those are the kinds of films that I want to be spending my like day to day with. Absolutely. Tell me, though, so in terms of what is, what is the most important thing you want your audience to take from your work? I think um, I want to create films that give audiences permission to to do whatever they want. Mm. Um, I want to create films that propose a lot, but that don't tell you what the message is, that don't tell you what to take away, that don't tell you you should change this in your life or you should not change this in your life. I, I want to create, I want to carve out kind of spaces um, and pockets of time where people can look at themselves and can look at their own lives maybe with more determination, with more love, um, with more intensity. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also want to empower them to draw whatever conclusions they choose to draw. Mm -hmm. Sure. Now, you have to answer these questions in one word, huh? Those five questions <laughs> I'm throwing at you. <laughs> okay, tell me, what does filmmaking mean to you? One word. Life. What do you do when everything goes wrong? Bicycle. 
<laughs> okay uh, books or films that you constantly go back to Symbio Psycho Taxi Plasm. Is that a book? It's a film. <laughs> okay. The most important people in your life. Friends. Where is storytelling heading? My my instinct was to say inward, but then I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You want to say inward? I'll go. I'll I'll stick with it. Inward. Inward. <laughs> okay. All right, Isidore Bethel. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for sharing yourself and your experiences with us. I so appreciate this. Thank you, Suchita. It's really been a pleasure. For me, one big takeaway uh, from this conversation is just to be courageous and bold in your filmmaking and just go out there and tell your story without thinking too much about your audience and just do it, you know. And um, thanks to Isidore for being part of this conversation and sharing a part of him with us. What are your thoughts on filmmakers and artists getting labeled? Do you think that it helps them in a certain way to get seen or do you think that it affects their psyche which can be in a good way but it can also be in a bad way? Let us know what you guys think about getting labeled and would you like to get labeled? We are listening and take care of yourself. It's good to hear from all you guys.